Health is a state of body and mind. Wellness is a state of being. We want you to have both. This is Channels of Health, the podcast giving you ideas and insights into new and time-tested avenues to health. From mental wellness and innovations in mental health to our daily lives and overall health journeys. Join your hosts, Patty and Damien, both founders of organizations dedicated to healing as they bring candid conversations and new information to you. Let's start the show. Here are your hosts, Patty and Damien. Good morning. Well, good afternoon for Cindy Bulick. Dr. Cynthia Bulick is one of our favorite guests. She knows so much, we need to bring her on with some great regularity. She is one of the preeminent research scientists in the connection between genetics and eating disorders. And she is just back from a virtual conference in London. So welcome to Channels of Health. This is Patty Giola, and I'm here with Damien Skinner. Good morning, morning. And we are inviting Dr. Bulick to tell us what is going on in the world of eating disorders and the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative. So get us up to speed, Dr. B. <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> All right. How are you doing, Patty and Damien? Great to see you both again. Thanks. Um, albeit virtually still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but at least we do have the Zooms and the go to meetings and all of that so we can at least see each other, even if not in person. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's, a, it's always a pleasure to be here because, you know, Patty, you know, you ask the hard questions and I'm always happy to try to answer them. As <laughs> as the hard hitting questions. Exactly. Wandering minds want to know. Yeah, no doubt. That's, a, that's well said. Well said. So, Where would you like yeah. me to start? I would like for you to start by telling us about this virtual conference that you just left because that would probably be the most up to speed news that anybody might have right now. And then after that, we can do a segue into the update for Edgy. Okay, that sounds good. Yep, in fact, I think the conference might actually still be going on. This might be its last day. It was the annual conference of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the United Kingdom. Um, and I think in some ways it was actually a great conference because the, the one silver lining of having to do all of these virtual conferences is how many more people can attend them uh, who otherwise yes. wouldn't be able to afford to fly to London. Oh, exactly. Excellent point. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we actually sort of reached many more people than I would normally have. And um, I gave a keynote there on genes and environment and eating disorders, um, talking about the latest uh, findings that we published on anorexia nervosa and updating them as well on the various edgy projects that are going on around the world. So what can you tell us about the keynote presentation <laughs> and what was about that? Yeah, the neat thing about it actually was the keynote was only a half an hour long, but we had an hour and a half question and answer panel. Wow which I really loved because, yeah. I mean, even though people like submitted their questions uh, digitally, you know, like they typed them in and then the moderator asked them, it just sort of allowed me to go into more depth about what was actually happening. So we presented the, the findings that we've presented elsewhere already that show that genetically anorexia nervosa is both a psychiatric and a metabolic condition. And, you know, I was able to delve a little bit more deeply into what does that mean? And, you know, of course, we don't know exactly what it means yet, mm. except that maybe one of the reasons that we still do such a poor job treating anorexia nervosa is because we're focusing primarily on that psychiatric side 
and not asking really hard scientific questions about what's going on with their bodies metabolically. Right. Dr. Bulick, I think a lot of people who don't study this for a living or don't live with it don't truly understand the difference between a metabolic concern. That's what I was about to ask. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, have, we have one brain between the two of That's us. That's right. Yeah. Maybe break that down a little bit for our listeners yep. um, because I didn't know that people didn't understand that it was on both sides, if I can put it that simple. Yeah, so, yeah you can. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and maybe sort of smack in the middle. And I think that's, I've always said that anorexia rests on the mind-body border, mm. and we need to pay attention to both of those. But it's very much been considered a psychiatric condition right. for decades. Right. And so we treat it with psychotherapy. We treat it with psychiatric drugs, which, by the way, don't work. Um, there are no medications that work for anorexia nervosa. Um, but they're all targeting sort of psychiatric processes, depression, anxiety, et cetera. What our findings showed was that on a genetic level, not only does anorexia sort of cluster with other psychiatric disorders, but it also clusters with metabolic processes like risk for type 2 diabetes, like um, leptin, like insulin resistance, um, which means that there's something going on in these people on a fundamental biological level that suggests that their metabolism is for lack of a scientific term, out of whack um, in one way or another, that might be why, one, it's so it's possible for them to get down to these really low body weights. And two, after we re-nourish them in hospital, their bodies seem to pull them right back down to that low weight again. Hmm. That help? Yeah, big time. That's fascinating. Okay. And, and you've explained the connection that... Um, they actually feel physically better when they don't eat. And that's very confusing to a lot of my friends and colleagues. And, and again, there's still a major mindset that this is something that they choose to do. Would you explain, because it's, it's a real common misunderstanding, and almost on a weekly basis I end up talking to somebody saying, I had no idea. So talk about it in layman's terms, but you're more thorough than I can explain it. Yeah, I can do that. Um, exactly. I mean, first off, I will underscore what you said is anorexia is not a choice, nor is bulimia or binging dis- binge eating disorder. And that contributes to stigma because like, I can't imagine someone coming up to you and saying, oh, I thought asthma was a choice. Right. You know, that just right. like blows my mind that for some reason they can say that about a serious psychiatric lethal illness, but not about any other kind of condition. So right. let's just get that out on the table right then and there. Um, eating disorders are not a choice. Um, But this bit about anorexia that you're referring to, Patty, is what we often hear from people who develop the illness. And that is that at baseline, so in their normal day-to-day living, they're pretty anxious and maybe dysphoric, you know, sort of like sad, pessimistic people. And when they go on that first diet and when they restrict their food intake for the first time, they actually physically feel like their anxiety comes down. So, because the question is always, why will they continue starving themselves? What's reinforcing about that? What feels good about that? Right, yeah. And what they say is it's just like sort of like, you know, ibuprofen will take away a headache. For them, starvation can take away anxiety. Um, And in fact, what we see is when we re-nourish them, their anxiety levels start to to climb. And again, we've always psychologized that process. 
Um, but I'm not convinced. So I think there actually might be a bio biological process that kicks back in when we re-nourish them, that takes them back to that feeling of anxiety and dysphoria that they had before they got the illness. I, I love that explanation because it really is very simple. Not that many professional research scientists can also talk to intelligent but not professionally in their same field. So you've really helped people to understand. Are you aware of the, it's, I don't know if it's trending, if that's the right term or not, but a lot of YouTube videos and a lot of um, books are being written about restriction and fasting for windows of time. It seems to be pretty much gaining some strength. I saw one video on that just yesterday, and they were talking about, you know, you should be fasting every week for 24 hours or something like that. And I'm like, I think I need to get Dr. B to weigh in on that, mm, if she yeah. would, because when does a, a process of juicing and fasting stop being healthy and then starts to be a concern because if, if now the new trend is these not just runway models starving themselves, but you actually have self-appointed health gurus <laughs> saying it's going to be super good for you the longer you can go without food. And interestingly, this is something that appeals to men. Yes. Um, yes, the I two people this... that were being interviewed yesterday, the interviewer and the guys. interviewee were guys. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so this is what I call eating disorders in sheep's clothes. Um, and the really interesting thing about it, with, well, first off, a study came out not that long ago, maybe a month or two months ago, that basically shows, shows that this kind of intermittent fasting doesn't work in terms of weight control. Um, so that's a myth. Um, bust that right there. But the thing that I've seen, especially among guys, is this becomes sort of a competitive thing. Um, Shocking. And I see them like around <laughs> the water cooler. Yeah, like, really, how right? many hours have you gone without right. food? Oh, yeah. Oh, that dude. That's exactly true. It's like, man, I can go for like 48 hours without, you know, it's like, oh my God. And here's where it crosses the line it crosses the line to be unhealthy once it starts interfering with your life. Right. And believe me, if you're, let's, let's just, and this is a little stereotypical, but we're going to imagine this family. There are two kids, a mom and a dad. A dad is an intermittent faster. Um, and mom's the cook, just, just for convenience sake. Or even if dad's the cook, how can you plan for that and have the rest of your family eating a regular meal when someone is in their 48-hour their fast? And what right. do you say to your 10-year-old child? Oh, daddy's fasting now or mommy's fasting now. I mean, that is setting a terrible example. Mm. It's disrupting family life. And not just that, it's like, no, I can't go out with my friends on Friday because that's a fasting period. So it's interfering with your social life. Weird. Great explanation. Yeah. This is, but isn't that probably the case about um, when anything becomes problematic, if you drink yeah. too much and then it interferes with your life? If your drinking interferes with your life, if your work style interferes with your life? I was thinking the same thing. Anything that yeah. starts changing your, your life obviously is ticking over into a negative space. So is there any good reason for intermittent fasting? Like I come from, there's another whole side to this that we don't have to go into, but there's the, you use the term guru. There's also the spiritual mindset of fasting that's been around for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. But in the world today, I don't see people saying, oh, I'm going to go to the Himalayans for four weeks and fast. It's like, I'm going to fast while I'm going to meetings. I'm going to fast while I'm working. It's not the same kind of fast, so your mind kind of needs some juice in order to work. 
So if I was going to fast and just sit and meditate for four weeks, that's still pretty negative on the body. <laughs> but imagine this, the day-to-day -day work. Where did this crossover come from in your mind? And maybe it, this is just a, a silly no, follow-up question. A, but no, no, it's interesting. There was and, a valid point at some point to this fasting idea. I yeah. think it's been over-commercialized and, and lost or something. Right. And the point of it has changed. I mean, I still have huge respect for the type of fasting that is associated with um, valid religious reasons. Sure. You know, whether it's Ramadan or one of the Jewish holidays or whatever. And, and that still exists. Although, interestingly, we have gotten lots of exceptions to those rules from, mm. religious, from religious leaders in those religions who acknowledge that this is unhealthy for people with eating disorders. Okay. So, it, and them. I think that's, I think that's awesome. I, I mean, too. I always yeah. feel so great because I know a couple people, um, I actually did a documentary with someone whose eating disorder really got triggered by Ramadan. Um, and she was looking forward to it. And was like, oh, I can fast again and it's legitimate. Right? That's what I was just going to ask you so about, Cindy, because I, I'm familiar with people in the Jewish uh, tradition, the Jewish faith, yep. saying the yep. same thing. Exactly. And so you're not going to get one of those people to say, would you please interfere on my behalf? And so I don't have to fast. They actually crave the fasting. They look forward to it. And then they, they prolong the fast a little bit past when they're sundown or whatever the right. change of time is. So it's, it's like an opportunity to cheat that everybody blesses and allows them to do, and they can get, yeah, so. Wow. But that's actually the, the exact answer to Damien's question. So the reason behind the fast got flipped. Yes. It went from the religious reason right. to that this is an opportunity to lose weight or to achieve this sense of reduction of my anxiety that mm -hmm. perpetuates my eating disorder. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, and it's, and again, this is a, a bigger subject, but something that we talk about on almost every podcast is how much mental health is becoming a marketed thing. And I'm 20 years marketer. The minute something becomes marketed and it has all the terminology and the t-shirts and the bumper stickers, it loses its impact. There's a bell curve of the awareness. And this might be a segue. I don't know. I'm like a bull in a china shop on some of these questions. But like, I would love to hear from you. You're on such the front lines on, on this with so much knowledge. What do you see from the biggest, broadest sense this need to self-improve so much everything i don't know like you even are getting where i'm going i got to read four books in a day i got to learn a new language i got to lose weight i got to work out i got to this <laughs> intermittent fasting sits right in the middle of that yeah. as a easier way to accomplish some of your life goals I'm 46. I never had all those life goals on me growing up, man. Like I was doing good making my bed. I'm people that are younger than me are so obsessed with the improvement. Do you feel like that is part of this general wave behind the eating disorder? Are people slowly getting caught into an eating disorder through the means of self-improvement? That's a weird loaded question, but That's a hugely loaded question. It's also Sorry. it's exhausting. Yeah, I mean, honest to goodness, that is exhausting, and I think it's it's very much the same thing as we see in you know high school students who are trying to get into college. Right. They feel like they have to take you know seven AP courses and be on every debate team and chess right. team plus three sports teams, and it's like, oh my god, why can't this is a, like old? I love Bull Durham, right? That's like one of my favorite. You know, <laughs> yeah. I just want to be. Yeah. You know, why can't you just let me be? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
And it's almost like that's not okay anymore. We right. constantly have to be striving. And I think we saw so much of that during the pandemic as mm. well, where there was this pressure to, you know, what did you achieve during the pandemic? And I'm right. like, are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I survived, I survived it. Yeah. On the other end yeah. surviving, yeah. right. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's the driving force no. behind eating disorders because they've been there forever, but it can easily get entangled with it and become sort of like swept away with that tide. That's right. Yeah, it's the entanglement. You talk about Ramadan. I mean, what a wonderful thing. And then for it to turn into an eating disorder for someone, they're, the way they interpret it. So back to the genetics as aspect of that. Anybody could be in that Ramadan example, and it's only the person that is dealing with this on a genetics level that's going to take this exit. Is that a way of saying it? I love that. Let's, let's actually do a day, a day in the life. Okay. So you're, it, it's Ramadan. You're fasting during the day. A person who was not genetically predisposed to anorexia nervosa, you know, by the time the sun is starting to go down in the sky, they're starting to get hungry and grumpy and scratchy. Yeah, um, I can vouch for that. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I ended up accidentally finding myself in Ramadan. I mean, in Morocco on Ramadan. Oh. And so oh, yeah. we got a super cranky cab driver because, and that's exactly what he said. I'm sorry, I'm so hungry. Yeah, it's just Ramadan. Yeah. But you're really? right. Yeah, I mean, I accidentally lived it. That's hilarious. Yep, exactly. But, but that one person who's genetically predisposed is going to start feeling better as the day goes on. And they're not looking forward to their meal. Um, and, you know, they're looking forward to the next day coming because they'll be able to, re, you know, to restrict again. Yeah. So it really does. You know, it, it, your response to fasting varies based on your genetic makeup. Oh, can I say something else? I'm of course. So... <laughs> We have a study, um, you know that I spend half of my time in Sweden right. when we're not in a pandemic and lockdown, whatever. We're doing a study where we're taking identical twins. So they are genetically identical, but one of them had anorexia and one of them didn't. Okay. Um, and then we compare them to identical twins, neither of whom ever had anorexia nervosa. And we put them through an 18 hour overnight fast. And we put them in the um, fMRI scanner. Mm -hmm. We do neuropsychological testing. We do mood testing. Wow. We do biological measurements before and after that fast. So we're actually getting measurements on people who are genetically identical um, versus people who have no genetic relationship with them whatsoever to see how they biologically and psychologically and their brains react to an 18 hour fast. So we're going to have data to answer this question. How cool. When oh. will you have that data? <laughs> <laughs> one brain. Just one. When will you have that data? Yeah. When will you come back on our podcast? Exactly. we got to hear yeah. about that. Um, yeah, no. So, I mean, we got shut down for COVID, obviously, gotcha. but we're back up and running again. So I Great. think we have 30 pairs who have gone through the full study now. It's a full two-day study. Wow. So Whoa, yeah. you know, they come and they spend the night in the hospital. Um, in our research, um, you know, research overnight labs that we have there. Um, and, you know, they're just, they're amazingly cooperative with this because mm. they want to understand their illness or their sister's illness or their brother's illness as much as anyone else does. Right. And they're like, I know there's something different about me. I just don't know what it is. So please help me identify that. Wow. That is great news. I, mean, I seriously, when is when is that going to be available? Yeah, we, we don't know. It's going to be a couple years. It'll oh, okay, years. okay. Yeah. Well, we'll just stay tuned. I'm sure there's going to be a whole lot of other things. We should book you then. now, like book yeah. you now. <laughs> on the podcast. We're just going to book you now for that. Two, two years out. Two yeah. years next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I know I do want to give you time to update us on Edgy. Mm -hmm. 
and you had several subjects inside of that. Um, so you want to start with the NIMH-funded project, National Institute of Mental Health, for anybody who's not deeply involved in it. Sure. So EDGY stands for Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative. We'll just call it EDGY for short. And the National Institute of Mental Health is funding the study in the United States, New Zealand, Australia, and Denmark. And then we have parallel EDGY studies going on funded in other ways in Sweden and the United Kingdom. And we're in the launch phase in the Netherlands, Italy, and Mexico. And in the United States, we're fully bilingual, so the entire study can be done in English or in Spanish. Um, and basically, the goal of this study is to collect saliva, to extract DNA from as many possible people as we can who have ever, in their entire lifetime, had anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or binge eating disorder. And in some of the other countries, we broadened that even more to get sort of sub-threshold eating disorders and atypical anorexia nervosa, which we can talk about in a bit if you want to. Um, and recruitment is going really well around the world. Um, we're really heartened by the fact that we have actually reached our goal for um, Spanish-speaking participants in the United States um, already, and we're only a year and a half into recruitment, and we've got another year and a half to go. Mm. Um, so I think making that extra step and putting everything in Spanish and you know, making sure our website was in Spanish yeah. and all the questionnaires were in Spanish was really helpful. Well done, yeah. Um, and, but we've still got a way to go because, and if you don't mind me leading you down a path, a topic <laughs> path here. That's right, that's fine, go for it. Okay, um, so if you look at the history of this kind of research, psychiatric genetics, um, a lot of the studies have been done in what we call European ancestry populations. So right. otherwise that means white people. Um, but we know that all of these illnesses don't only occur in white people. Um, the reason it's really important for us to get genetic samples from people of all backgrounds who have eating disorders is because we need to be able to know if the same genetic factors are operative across different ancestries. And I can see Damien's eyes already rolling oh, yeah, in the I'm, back of his head. But here's, here's the follow-up question. I'm going to ask it. So let's just project ourselves, you know, maybe five years down the line where we've identified enough genes that we can identify biological pathways that contribute to eating disorders that we can target with new medications. If we identify those pathways only based on European ancestry participants, we have no way of knowing that those medications that we develop based on this research are gonna work in other populations. If we only study women, we have no idea if the genetic factors are gonna be the same in men. If we only study European ancestry populations, we don't know if those are gonna be the same biological pathways in people of African ancestry, Asian ancestry, other ancestries. So we absolutely have to make sure that our samples are representative of the way eating disorders live in the world so that any treatments that come out of this research will be tailored to the actual underlying biology of those people. I have a couple of questions. How far are you in this search for the variety? And do you envision when you get through this uh, a role for precision medicine? 
Oh, that's exactly, I would actually, some people call it precision. Some people call it personalized. Some people call it tailored. Okay. Um, right now we've got a one size fits all approach to eating disorders. Um, even in terms of how we re-nourish people, you know, you come into the hospital and you get prescribed a certain number of like calories per kilogram. Um, but we have no idea if we should actually be changing the composition, sort of the macronutrient and the micronutrient composition of someone's diet based, for example, on their genetics or on their intestinal microbiota. Um, the bugs you have in your gut. I was just going to say, um, I'm, you, you and I have talked about this so many times that I'm, a, I'm afraid I've kind of launched right into some topic that's going to need some explanation. We can always tell by the look on Damien's yeah, face. When, when I start rocking back and forth and my eyes are darting, my list of questions are getting uncontrollable. But. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that, what she was explaining was precision medicine or personal medicine or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, where are we going to... Uh, our, our listeners are used to hearing me do this. I didn't do it. I'm, I pride myself on knowing the least amount of anybody on the podcast. That's the whole idea. That's my role, is to ask the question. So when you said, when you made that comment about my eyes, I literally was having a moment. I was about to raise my hand. <laughs> like he was in school. Yeah. Uh, like, teacher? Uh, hang on a second. I'm lost because I have a hard time moving past this idea and I'm so sorry, this is almost embarrassing to say, I did not realize or I did not accept that we were viewing it still that way, that it was still one size fits all. And we're like, hey, this happens to white people. So this is the way it works for every. So as you were explaining that, I'm like, what? We didn't do that like 20 years ago. So when I see the intensity and the passion in you when you're talking about stuff, I think that that's because you love your job, which you clearly do. But then as you start unpacking it, I hear it's more from, this is ridiculous. Like, yeah. my God, this is ridiculous that yes. this much work is going in in 2021 just to find out how it affects other... I, I didn't know we were that far behind. Is yeah. the literally I, the look you saw hit my face. Yeah, and Damien, you can say it. You can say, you know, Dr. Bill looks angry. Um, you know, yeah. because this, this actually does, it makes me irate. It should. Um, yeah. That's no, an appropriate response. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but that's not enough. Um, yeah. you know, and I, and I think this is the whole thing behind the passion of like, okay, enough awareness, let's go to action. Right. Um, you know, yeah. we have been like, <laughs> you're talking our language. Awareness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, how true is that? I mean, I still have parents that come to me or, um, oh, we just did this beautiful, this beautiful, beautiful um, role play. We're on a whole other topic, right? We developed this couple-based treatment for eating disorder, and we did a role play with an African-American woman um, and her partner talking about, and she does a direct-to-camera interview about what, what it's like to be a Black woman with anorexia nervosa um, and just how demoralizing it is if you go to your doctor and your doctor might be white and might say, mm, no, you're not thin enough. Um, you don't really have anorexia nervosa. And she's like, this is the way, this is, these are my bones. This is like, I can't get any thinner. Or I've got all the cognitive, you know, the brain, the thinking, the cognitions of anorexia, but just because I don't reach some BMI threshold, oh, I don't yeah. count in your mind. Um, and the number of people who have just sort of shrunk back under a rock mm. because they've been invalidated or haven't been taken seriously or said, you know, you, you can't have that. You're a man. Men don't get that. Or, you know, women in menopause get anorexia. Are you kidding? Or, 
you know, black people don't get, you know, binge eating disorder, you know, whatever it is. It's just, you know, inclusive healthcare is just, it's so important. Yeah. And listening to your patients is so important. And that's, and, and look, I have empathy for physicians who have 10 minutes with you and now they have right. to take online notes at the same time. Right. Right. So they never even look you in the eye. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, we need to listen to our patients because they know their bodies better than we do. Yeah. Yeah. Cindy, is this a good time? I'm, nope. Are you okay? Because yeah. I think I've got something to Please. add to this subject. So I think this could be a segue to explaining what anorexia, I mean, atypical anorexia is, because the gal who said, these are my bones, had one situation, but I'd like to ask you to explain what atypical anorexia is. Yeah. Um, it, it's actually a complicated answer um, because the definition is fuzzy and still differs across different countries. But what it, in its essence, is you have all of the features of anorexia nervosa. So you have body dissatisfaction, you have a fear of weight gain, you restrict your food intake, and you might lose a lot of weight, but you're not at low weight. So this can be someone who falls into, and these are medical terms, you know, the overweight category or the obese category, have lost a lot of weight, have all of that mindset of anorexia nervosa and may be undernourished or malnourished despite being in a large body. Um, that is what the current definition in this country of atypical anorexia nervosa is. And the reason it's such a big deal is because it's dangerous. Um, there are health complications associated with it and it is grossly underdetected and underfunded by insurance companies. Thank you. And yeah, I think that there's so much confusion about people that have eating disorders who are not in a stereotypic body that would indicate they are incredibly low weight. Right. So once you see that person, sometimes even though you're, when, they, when people explain to me you're not supposed to judge if somebody has an eating disorder by looking at them, then there's the flip of you have somebody who's 5'7 and 90 pounds or something like that. So the, this whole explanation of what is going on with somebody that's in a bigger body, I think it's even more confusing because that's when you absolutely can't judge yeah. whether or not right. somebody is recovering from or whatever. And what are the stages that that person has to go through before they even discover this is what's going on? Again, I'm going to use myself. Uh, if I was in that situation, I would never in a million years think of an eating disorder. I would think that it's all these other things. And then as your body starts breaking down, you're like, oh, there's just all these problems with my body. So how would they ever find that out? Like, And I'd even add to that trying to disentangle natural aging from consequences of an eating disorder, right? Because oh, you only age once. Um, you know, so you don't really know what's normal because right. people don't usually talk about it. Um, but for example, I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, back to tying this back into edgy, that we're having more difficulty recruiting people with binge eating disorder than we are recruiting people with anorexia nervosa. Um, I think there are so many people out there who have binge eating disorder who have no idea that they have a diagnosable and treatable illness. They just feel guilty about the fact that their eating is out of control. They're ashamed. There's just so much shame yes. in people with binge eating disorder. Um, and, you know, we're trying to help 
sort of normalize it. We're trying to help let them know that they are not alone, that this is an identifiable and fixable problem um, and, and get them to join into EDGY and give us their, their DNA and answer our questionnaires so that we can understand it better and treat it better. I have a stereotype in my mind, and I would like to ask you to answer a question. When people binge eat, what kind of foods do they consume? So typically, they are easily consumed foods that are um, high sugar, high carbohydrate. Um, you know, and it's often straight from the container, like, you know, a half gallon of ice cream or right. a bag of chips or... Right. Yeah, something along those lines. Um, and it also varies a little bit um, by if it's bulimia or binge eating disorder. Um, but sometimes it's, you know, we, we have so many people, and again, especially now in the pandemic, um, with a lot of restaurants being closed, but drive-throughs through drive -throughs oh, being yeah. open, yeah. who were sort of like sequential drive-through bingers. Um, and so their cars become sort of like a haven of safety where they can binge eat without being detected. Mm -hmm. right, um, right. You know, and and so sometimes it might be it might for some people, it could be sort of just like a very large meal. And it's not necessarily the quantity that makes it a binge. It's that sense of feeling out of control. Right. Um, right. You know, that they just can't stop eating that the breaks aren't there. You know, the satiety signal, that that signal that goes from your gut to your brain that starts saying, slow down. Right. I think this is a great way for people to learn about what satiety signals are. Okay. Next time you have a meal, um, just monitor your interbite interval. So the amount of time between bites. And what you'll notice is in the beginning of the meal, if you're hungry, it's pretty close. Right. And then your interbite inter interval starts getting longer as you get fuller. Hmm. And you know, that means that those signals are going from your stomach to your head saying, right, we're starting to get full now, time to slow down, um, until that point where you put your fork and your knife down and you stop eating. Well, people with binge eating disorder, they override that signal or they're not born with it. So they don't have that internal stop mechanism, those breaks that stop them toward the end of a meal. Now, do they have the discomfort that comes with after that? So they eat that huge meal, they couldn't stop it, but they are still feeling all of the discomfort. It doesn't feel good. Okay. Exactly. So yeah, it's not it that far to where it like makes them feel great. They no, just no, don't no. have the ability to stop it. Okay. They don't have the ability to stop. And some people also talk about during a binge being sort of in the binge zone where it numbs them out for a period mm. of time. Um, you know, and that really is, is why a binge works in the short term, because, you know, if they're stressed or anxious or whatever, it just puts them in that sort of like binge zone for a while until actually the discomfort can break through or they get interrupted or whatever. Um, but that's the reinforcing part of, of a binge. Is there a, a psychological element that is associated with the fact that not only am I binging, but I'm binging on foods that people wouldn't consider to be healthy as much as fruits and vegetables? Is there an added element of, I feel even more embarrassed because I'm eating chips or a half a oh, gallon yes. of ice cream. So not only yes. do I have the issue with knowing that I'm satisfied, but now I feel really ashamed that the right. stuff I am binging on, I didn't binge on a bowl of bananas or something. Right. 
Right. Celery is not a typical binge food, for example. Right. Yeah. You know, and 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 yeah, and this was a this was a big problem early in the pandemic, um, when we did the study of um, people with eating disorders in the first couple of months, um, like March, April, 2020, right. where people found themselves binging on foods that people were stockpiling right. because oh, yeah. they were so afraid that the supply chain was going to diminish and they weren't going to be able to access food. And they had things like, you know, boxes of cereal and protein bars and those sorts of things that were meant mm -hmm. to keep, sustain people if we actually did have problems with the supply chain. And then they would binge on them. And the guilt was just overwhelming. I, I got to bring this up right now. I've never shared this, but I had a friend. Um, we're still very good friends, so I'll keep it really vague in general. But uh, when he was over in Iraq and in, in uh, the military, he began binging their rationings, their uh, yep. the kits, whatever. MREs. Yes. MREs. And yep. if any of our listeners have never enjoyed one of those, they are the worst tasting thing on the planet. Everything is, you know it's powder that is supposed to taste like cheese or powder that's supposed to whatever. And that became a real problem so much so that he was getting in disciplinary issues because he couldn't stop binging these kits. And I remember when this was forever ago and I remember when he was telling me and I'm, I was teasing him. Like I had no idea. I'm like, you were doing what? And we all thought it was like, um, like stoner munchies. We're like, you mean you just had the munchies every night and you were tearing into everybody's, you know, these kits, they taste awful. And of course he couldn't explain it. It was like, really? I just, and he started saying, I'm, I'm doing it in my sleep. I'm just yep. doing it in my sleep. Yep. And I'm sitting here listening to you thinking about number one, how disgusting that food is. It yep. was not for the pleasure of the food. It was numbing him out in a moment. And then he had peace in that moment. Is that Yep. accurate that's it that's that's exactly right no you you are so on target in fact we have a grant in right now to look at this um i've got a daughter who's in the infantry and we talk about this all the time because the other thing about mres is they're designed to be eaten fast right um so for uh, someone who is predisposed to binge eating you've got dense food very. eaten fat and then frankly when you're back from deployment and you're back on base if you look at the type of foods that are available on base, mm. it's all fast food, classic binge food sure. stuff. They don't have great food options. And most of them shop at the PX or the nearest store is going to be a Walmart or something. Or so, Dollar General. Yeah. Or a do Dollar, exactly, Dollar General. Yeah. So it just perpetuates that unhealthy eating behavior. Yeah. And, you know, the Army has such a problem with weight. Well, actually, all the branches have such a problem with weight. And it's like, yeah, you think? Yeah. You know, you train people to woof these high calorie meals down in 10 minutes or less. You bring them back home mm -hmm. and give them bad food on base. You've created the problem yourself. Right. I think she sees that as a problem. Yeah. It's not very clear. I don't know. <laughs> do you have an opinion on yeah. that? What do I really think? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Damien's got a question. I've got so many questions, um, <laughs> but I'm trying to be good with our time. We, we've got you for about 15 more minutes. I, I, I would like to come back to Edgy and, um, you know, because I've known about it since it launched through Patty and, and through Patty's nonprofit uh, efforts and helping with that. Um, but is there an issue in getting all the numbers that you need here in the United States? Because I think I heard you guys talking about that, and I don't want to get off of that. And I'd actually like to dig into it so I can understand why you think that is. So right. I just loaded it, and the audience doesn't even know. 
where are we at? Because you were saying the Spanish-speaking audience is doing so great. Where are we it at? Could be do, it could still be better. Okay, it be can still be better. So where are you at with the other numbers? Yeah, so um, I don't understand why we didn't get 20,000 people in the first three months, you know, given how many people in this country have the illness. In fact, I was talking with my Swedish team last week, and I said, okay, how many people who are currently alive in Sweden have ever had an eating disorder? And they said 200,000. I said, okay, so we should be able to get 100,000 of them. Um, so if we look at the number of people in this country who have ever had an eating disorder, um, why haven't they all signed up? Um, and my answer to that is that in a smaller country like Australia, New Zealand, Italy, Sweden, you know, we've been able to create national movements. Um, everybody, you know, you find a couple influencers who everybody in the country follows and boom, you know, you hit almost everyone who's ever had an eating disorder. Right. Um, so recruitment is actually faster in those countries. Here, we all have these pockets. We live in silos. And I mean, that's caused its own set of problems. Sure. Um, yeah. Another podcast, right? But it's the same thing with eating disorders. It's like, we can keep broadcasting this information to people who pay attention, but how do we get this information outside of that circle of people who are already attending to eating disorder related podcasts? Mm -hmm. And I haven't figured out how to do that. Um, and, and I think that's what we need to do because I tell my team, it's like, I don't wanna just get 17,000 people. I wanna get 100,000 people. Right. Um, and some of the other disorders have that, but they've been working at it for a decade longer. Like major depression has that many and sure. schizophrenia has that many. Um, but I don't want to wait that long. I don't want to wait 10 years to get that many. Right. Um, you're the marketer, Damien. I was just thinking how we can get. Well, when, when Patty out. was telling me this, I had a anger spike uh, on the phone. I'm like, it was basically a what? Like, <laughs> yeah. because I, you know. Being the way I am, after you and I talked last, after the event back in November, I just assumed you guys had your numbers and you were you were moving on. And you know, being a being a marketer for twenty years, it it, it can give you the sense that you're jaded. It's not jaded. You just have watched the way our population works for so long that if there's not in America, in my opinion only, if there's not a true emotional uh, pool, it doesn't register. Like you can show numbers and this is not like this around the world. You know, I've done plenty of marketing in Europe and for years and years worked in other countries. It's not the same. And I think you're right on the population size, but also in America, I don't know if our education around eating disorders are on par with some of these other countries, mm. you know, yeah, you got a larger population, but a lot of people, the shame, and we always come back to the shame factor. I'd be willing to bet that the shame factor is probably a little bit greater in America around eating disorders than in some of these other countries. Would you agree with that? I would actually agree. Yeah. Right. People come up to me in Sweden all the time and are excited to tell me I had anorexia when I was a kid. Right. Um, and I'm doing a lot better now, but I would really love to participate in your study. See. What do you need? Yeah. I can't I imagine that happening to you here in the States. Mm -hmm. I really can't. Yeah. And, and yeah. so you have to go through, I, I imagine being someone like you that, you know, uh, you're working with real information, real numbers, not speculation. This has to be so frustrating to hear, but you have to go through an emotional filter to get most Americans past their shame. The shame could be that they had it. The shame could be that they knew someone that had it. The shame could be that they knew someone and they didn't do 
the layers of shame. Yeah. You yeah. have to blast yeah. through that through an emotional communication. Is, and, is yeah. some of that because there's more open-mindedness in other countries to the concept of a mental health disorder? Whereas in America, there, there's levels of stigma on mental health issues. Like, I'm willing to tell you I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not willing to tell you I'm anorexic. Right. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think we've sort of broken through depression to some extent. That's, and yeah, exactly. The what pandemic I was is helping us break. Well, we've broken through breast cancer. Yeah. I mean, that used to be hush hush. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but now we all wear pink ribbons, right. um, you know, so and it's it's the same thing. But it's like we have to go through it for every disorder. Well, it's that bell curve that we were talking about right. earlier, you know, yeah. so breast cancer is over here almost yeah. to where everybody has a ribbon the impact of that pink ribbon is not what it used to be. Like right. we don't see it anymore. We just scan yeah. past it. Right. Some part of our brain goes, that's pink and that's it. Where right. you guys, you're here on that bell curve. You're still in that climb, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. And I know that's frustrating and there's a lot of creative ways we can, you know, sideline. I'd be more than happy to, to talk with you about any of the things. Um, again, I feel bad. I didn't know that there was a struggle going on to get this. Mm. I'm part of that mindset. Like, Right. It's been announced. It's awesome. It's genetics. Like I pictured there was a line of a hundred thousand people like here, take my spit, but not so much. You're having to beg so for much. people. So, so let's take yeah. a minute and talk about that. You say you have another year and a half where you're yeah. gathering data. Let's yeah. give you an opportunity to pitch. If somebody wanted to participate or somebody wants to suggest a family member participate, how would they contact you? It's so simple. I mean, you, all you have to do is go up to edgy.org edgi.org um, and or right there there's a click espanol or english so you can do either one um, and our phone number is there our email is there we're happy to talk to people who like if if participating in research is not something that is familiar to them and they've got if they're hesitant we are so happy to just have a conversation and mm -hmm. talk them through the process um, we have a video that's going to be coming out soon that it's sort of like a soup to nuts video. Okay. Um, you know, it takes someone from, she goes from looking at the website, filling out questionnaires, her little spit kit comes in the mail, she spits into it, she puts it back together, oh, she pops thanks. it in the post, and then we take you straight into the lab so you oh, can cool. see what happens to your spit once <laughs> we get it. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so it's sort of like the journey that you go on. Um, and, you know, we, we want to do the same thing in a couple different ways. You know, we talked about animating it, um, you know, just to make it a little bit more engaging. Although I think the video is pretty engaging itself. Because I think people really love seeing, okay, so I sent you my spit, then oh, what yeah. happens? Oh, yeah. you know, they want to know behind the curtain. You know, sure. what's, what's the wizard doing behind the curtain? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it, hopefully that's going to, like Damien said, help break through a little bit of that shame and get through that wall and maybe accelerate our climb up that curve a little right. bit. Right. There, there also, uh, the difference and then I'll stop after this cause I could talk about this forever in, in the States, there's a difference between doing something because it's a good thing. There has to be an understanding of the benefit. Right. right. And, and a lot of times people have a hard time with that. They're like, well, that's not right. This is such an important thing. It's just kind of a human nature aspect which is after I do this, what is going to be the benefit? And you can say it day after day after day after day, but showing what that benefit is, is the difference of getting people into that cause mindset. You know, right. Right. the minute it's a cause, everybody's changing their social media pictures. Everybody's got stickers. Everybody's 
man, you are just yeah. a few ticks from hitting that, that right. wave, right. you know? Um, and I know it's frustrating and I, I, I just cannot thank you enough. And it's not some just make you feel good. What you're doing and how you're doing it, it's just so incredible to see real work towards real solutions. It just... So let's Thanks, add on to that then and ask Cindy to say to the folks that are going to be listening here, what's going to happen after the data collection and what do you hope to get out of it so that we can answer that question? What's that, the solution what's, coming from that? Yeah, what are we going to get out of that? Yeah. And what do we hope solution. to get? I mean, we hope that people don't die from these illnesses anymore, and we hope that we develop treatments that actually target these illnesses. And I mean, personally, what I would love to get out of this is to be put out of business. Mm. Um, you know, if we could figure out a way to identify and catch these illnesses right away and treat people appropriately based on their biology, uh, that's going to change the world. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, it sounds like a huge goal. But that's where we're headed because it hasn't been done up till now. And we've got this global machine that is, is working on this now across so many different countries. Awesome. Um, we need more. We need more people. We need more engagement. And we, we need more people who are going to carry the flag. You know, I think that's part of it, too, to just sort of like wave that AG banner and saying, you know, I did this because my friend died or because my daughter died or because I was ill for 13 years and wow. missed part of my life. Um, and just and, and like to create that cause. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're not there yet, but that's where we need to go. Yeah. But I think that we are building momentum because the number of available labs that do genetics research, I mean, not research, but uh, take genetics um, testing. And so that people do understand I think that that is growing because it's co it's coming to be more affordable yeah. to more people. What do you think, Cindy? Yeah, but unfortunately, those people, many of those people are way out ahead of the science. So they uh, see the opportunity to make a buck. Like if uh, anybody tells anybody listening to this podcast that they can do a genetic test for anorexia nervosa, if you pay them money, don't believe them because that is not possible. Hmm. That's an excellent point. I love it. Because there, there is a, a ton of stuff out there, and it seems to be growing so rapidly, it's hard to keep up with the research back to. So anything, anybody makes a statement to me about eating disorders, my go-to person is Dr. Bulick. Sure. Is this true? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, well, not exactly. Yeah. One example of that is the research that's done on the microbiome. Because mm -hmm. I've asked you about that before, and you yep. gave me your opinion. I don't know if you want to have an, <laughs> if you want to record it, but... Talk, no, talk, talk mean, about the you know the science and how much people. I'll let you go from there. You know what I'm yeah, asking. No, I mean we're we're doing it. So you know we're we've got about oh my god what ten thousand samples that are about to get sequenced. Um, so we'll have both genetic data and microbiome data because one of the things that we want to understand is how those two things interact. Like how does your genome interact with the genome of all the bugs in your gut? That's basically the fundamental scientific question we're doing. So um, cool. And. Talk about a data problem, no right? Doubt. I mean, no doubt. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, I think it's it's really important research to do, but it's another one of those fields where the commercialization outpaced the science. Like mm. they just ran for a touchdown with this mm. stuff. They did. Um, you know, but way ahead of the science. And I mean, we've done some real science about the microbiome and anorexia because we know that there are differences. They sort of have an impoverished microbiome. They starve the bugs in their gut, right? Um, but we need to understand so much more about it. And that's why we're going to get those 
samples sequenced and start looking at the science. So have me back maybe in a year. So before the, the twin study, have me back in a year to talk about the bugs. Okay, the bugs. I, I don't even think a lot of people, and maybe I'm not up to speed on a lot of reading, but I really didn't know much about the microbiome until you presented at a conference. Would you kind of do a, a layperson's explanation of the connection? And well, first of all, what is it? But secondly, the connection, because there's just, to your point with me over a year ago, yeah, there's a lot of information out there, but a lot of it's not accurate. So if, help us also to distill, if somebody says this, run, don't walk away from that literature, because that's not, that's not yeah. good stuff. So in, in the simplest of terms, this whole area of research is who's there and what are they doing? And what I mean by that is bugs in your gut. Mm -hmm. So which bugs are there and what is the activity that they're engaging in? Um, and we look at how many different types of bugs there are. We look at the DNA of the actual bugs and we look at what their function is. Um, and in eating disorders, of course, we look at the effect of starvation on your, your bug community. We look at the effects of laxatives on your bug community. Mm -hmm. um, and then we look to see if you get renourished, if you become healthy, if you recover, does your gastrointestinal system start looking more like that of a healthy person? Um, and I mean, that total nutshell, you know, last two minutes of the podcast nutshell. Um, but if anybody is telling you right now that they have a tailored probiotic that can treat anorexia nervosa, same thing. Don't believe them. We're not there yet. But are we looking to do that in the future? Um, absolutely. That's another kind of personalized nutrition um, that we might be able to put toward treating these people when we renourish them. This is so exciting. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah, it might be before a year, but we're definitely going to get more information. Well, my mind just blew up again because I never thought about the fact that things living inside of me have their own genetics. Right. Mm. Oh, so yeah. now I'm freaked out. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> Sleep on that tonight. Yeah, baby. yeah. You're going to get phone tonight, calls tonight. Yeah. Like, wait, what? But um, it is the time and we want to, we know you're very busy and you got a lot going on. We want to hold you right to that time. Um, was there anything else that you want to say or anything in particular you want to plug? Obviously, everybody that can needs to go to edgy.org, E-D-G-I.org. If you don't qualify for this, then and if you know someone that does, you need to share it with those people. Is that the best way to say it? I think that's beautiful. And if you have questions, give us a call or drop us an email and we'll respond. Awesome. One more for clarification. You said something earlier about signing up for Edgy because your motivation was that your daughter had an eating disorder or something like that. So is it going to be hard for somebody to qualify to take the uh, research if or to be part of the research, I mean to say, if they are related. Like, for an example, my niece died from anorexia. So would I be able to take that study? with Because I wouldn't qualify because I'd been diagnosed with a mental health illness of eating disorder, but would I qualify, how, what, how would I get past the filter is what I'm asking. Right, so we're, we're asking people who have ha ever had the illness as well as people who have never had the illness. Um, but if you have a biological family member who had an eating disorder, likelihood is high that you might have some of those genes that influence risk for the illness yourself. Um, so we do not like to have, for this particular design, we don't have family members involved. Oh, perfect. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I case, con case control design. Right, so right, people right, right. with the illness versus people who have never had the illness or their first degree family members. Um, so you might be far enough a way yeah. that you could be. But you're keeping that data set separated. Basically. Yes, exactly. Okay. But I'm, yeah. that's what I was asking is there's, there'll, there'll be something yeah. on the 
edgy opportunity to enroll. But it explains all that. Yeah, that, I, that was my memory, but I wanted to check to be sure. Yeah. Awesome. All righty. Thank you so much, Dr. Bulick, Dr. B, Cindy. <laughs> Whatever. We, we, I can't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, thank you so much. And uh, listeners, there's been a lot of information packed in this, um, and it's been great for us. Make sure you check out channelsofhealth.com for all of our other podcasts, and we will see you in the next one. Thank you for listening to Channels of Health. We're so glad you've joined us today. To find out more about our mission and to connect with Channels of Health, go to www.channelsofhealth.com. And you can email us directly at info at channelsofhealth.com. We look forward to our next episode with you. Until then, be well.